Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run courses and mentorship to help guide clinicians towards applying an evidence-based practice into their clinical practice. So for all the info on our upcoming in-person courses and group mentoring sessions this year, check out our website, tkex.org. I'm joined today and really excited to be joined by Jenny Rollings. She's a science-based yoga teacher, co-founder of Strength for Yoga and co-host of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I've been a passive lurker of Jenny's content for a while now and have been inspired by her honesty, humility, and ability to communicate complexity in simple and easily digestible ways. So I'm very keen today to dive into some of her journey and share some valuable insights into how we can better communicate reliable science-based information for both ourselves and for our communities. So Jenny, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me on, Daniel. And uh, as I told you before we started recording, I'm super honored to be a guest on your podcast. I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while now. And I just, yeah, I just uh, really admire the way that you um, offer education in such like smart, digestible, and also compassionate ways, I feel like. So thank you for that. Appreciate that. So the famous question that we ask all our guests, Jenny, what is your story? Yes. So my story is, first of all, I'm a little like extra conscious of the fact that I um, I feel like I might be a little different than many of the guests that you have on in the sense that they tend to be like clinicians or musculoskeletal clinicians or healthcare practitioners, and I'm not any of those things. Um, but so was, I'm a little different because I'm a yoga and movement teacher, and I definitely have kind of gone through a journey of realizing like from way back in my earlier yoga teaching days when I actually thought that that I did I was qualified to like help people with pain like I used to think that but the more that I've learned and evolved I've kind of realized that's actually that is not in my scope and to actually be more evidence based uh just to really embrace like what the yoga and movement is that I'm teaching and how much potential there is there but for just like a little going over what my story is it's just that I've been practicing yoga for a long time. And after I'd been practicing around eight to 10 years, I decided I was ready to start teaching. And once I started teaching, I feel like this is kind of a common experience for many of us when we go to teach like any material or modality, it often helps us realize like it exposes for us what we don't know. And so in in teaching yoga, I was teaching yoga, but I also realized that I was literally leading people through movements on the yoga mat. And I started to realize that as much as I've been trained in yoga, I actually hadn't really been trained very much as it, in um, how the body moves and in anatomy and, you know, biomechanics and our joints and all of that. I just realized like I was missing that. So I decided to really take it upon myself to educate myself more in that realm but when I first started off on that, and this is like years and years ago, I kind of sought out like, quote, alignment, like learning more about alignment, which I feel like you might be able to suspect that that maybe could lead someone down a path that might not be so, so updated. So in kind of pursuing learning more about alignment, I wound up in this training that just taught us a lot of what I now realize are kind of outdated ideas about the body, just, you know, a lot about the importance of stacking up your joints and everything being correct alignment and really kind of bringing that into my yoga classes and 
telling people that their alignment or their bad posture would cause them pain, like things like that. So that was like my first, like a first stage. And then I remember when I first began to learn about pain science, which was really not, you know, a, a part of anything that I had learned up to that point. I, re- I can remember back to the, the first moment that it was when my eyes were opened as far as pain science being a thing and what it had to offer, which was this awesome podcast interview with Todd Hargrove, who I'm pretty sure you must be familiar with. And we know how how amazing, what a great educator he is. So that like 2014, quite a while ago, that really opened my eyes. And as I'm sure you well know, learning about pain science can be such a paradigm shift. So um, that kind of took me on a path of just reading and learning as much as I could about that. There's, you know, like back in those days, there was a lot of like, there's a pain science kind of community on Facebook. I was, it's a lot of like chatter, uh, super old, which I kind of wonder, Daniel, based on some of your podcast guests I've seen, I wonder if you were ever tuned into something called Soma Simple. Yeah. Yes. Um, so indirectly, I think uh, I entered the this pain science kind of uh, community, we'll say online community mm-hmm. space a little bit after that. So it was more the exploring mm-hmm. pain research, I think. Group. Oh, yeah. I'll have to double check the name, but it's a Facebook group. And then I'm, I'm sure there were some people from that community that joined on. So I've heard some yes. stories, but what was your experience like? Uh, my experience was that it, it was really helpful but also like an interesting place to stumble upon at the time. Like mm-hmm. I, I definitely didn't see anyone, any other yoga people in that form. It was really mostly phys- physical therapists, physiotherapists, massage people. Uh, but, and there, you know, at the time, you know, there's a lot of complaints sometimes in the pain science crowd that people, I don't know, their quote tone can be off-putting or they're just super direct. And I definitely kind of noticed that like people were just Maybe I would have felt like at the time was rude, but today I feel I feel like I have a different understanding. They were just being direct and like science-based. So I felt like it was helpful. I feel like I learned a lot from it. And I tuned in like way back then to some amazing educators who I who are big people that I follow today, like Greg Lehman. I think I remember like Adam Meekins being around there, um, Diane Jacobs, like I got her book and just other people I've seen you've had on your podcast that I at least, I at least remember they were in that group or that chat, whatever you call it, like a forum or a yeah, chat room. It, it's super interesting that there was a podcast as the the gateway drug, we'll say, into the pain science world. Yeah, the world. gateway drug, yes. And that inspired you and it, and it inspired you to be curious. I think there was, there's some strength in there of making the time and making the effort to even challenge some of what you've been taught because that process, mm-hmm. I imagine, wasn't easy. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't easy. Like you really have to take a step back and look at these things that you, not only that I believed and they just seemed so intuitively correct, you know, like, I don't know, stacking up your body in this vertical alignment. Well, of course that should keep you pain-free. Like, of course that's optimal. Like it just sort of makes sense in one, in one way. But um, once you learn more about just how complex it all is and the biopsychosocial nature, it's just like not all, it doesn't all come down to that. So uh, yeah, I think that there's, it's tough, but there's needs to be a willingness to like question and maybe let go of these ideas, even if they formed a major foundation for what, what you not only practice, but also what you taught to other people. Like I definitely taught students things that today, you know, I would really counsel myself not to teach. Yeah, so it's absolutely. a tough reckoning, I feel like. The um the kind of uh looking back with maybe feelings of shame that we were taught all these things and we we had taught them to other people. I, I can definitely yeah. resonate with with that. It's it's a hard process. And I think um 
having a community, having role models, having people around you to support you during that transition phase is underrated. So it's really awesome to see that you had your own inner strength and courage and, and curiosity, and then you were able to create uh, your own kind of uh, name and, and also change and update some of the content. I, I shared one of your posts blog posts where you mentioned you, you had an I did yeah this is news uh, um so putting you on the spot here but uh, there's a there was a, an edit at the top where you, you mentioned mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Uh, I've come to realize that some of these concepts are outdated and that was like yeah. the first sentence I was like wow that's huge yeah, that's yeah. like so Im- impressive and admirable and hard to do so kudos to you for having that that courage well, thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, I do, I do follow your stuff online, but somehow I missed that you shared that for me. But but thank you. Yeah, I do feel like that's important. At least it feels important to me. Like I've had a blog for a long time, um, but I definitely had that having the blog predated, you know, a lot of my understandings today. So I just if those blog posts are going to be up and out there, I feel that it's important to kind of go back and put like what I think I call them disclaimers, like like you said at the top, I'll keep the blog post up. But at the top, I explain like I've evolved, you know, I've learned more and I've evolved my point of view. And here's some points that I'll tell you right off before you read this that today I might not agree with. And here's why. I think it's a good way to expose for people that they, they realize like there can be an evolution. This is how ideas adapt. And I really respect other educators when they update uh, what the uh, ideas that they teach and also when they're transparent around it, you know, like they just admit to it and share because that's part of the learning process too. Absolutely. I think that's a, a strength that's often seen sometimes as a weakness for some yes. reason. So I think the more examples and role models like yourself showing it and and putting it out there, I think that the better for all of us to see that it's normal as part of learning and growing and, and continually evolving because what we're saying now in this podcast, I'm sure in five years time, <laughs> 10 years time will be outdated. I hope would be outdated. Right. Right. I totally agree with you. As long as, yeah, as long as we try to stay up to date on research, research is always evolving. So yes, you would hope that we would be updating. Um, and in five years, things would be different. And you don't, you don't want to be stagnant or learn from people who stay stagnant and attached. I feel like, like you said, it's much stronger to evolve and adapt and own up to that. Um, and to just cling to old beliefs because it's more convenient or you don't want to look wrong. Mm. That's actually, I feel like the weaker way to go. Agree. Agree there. And I guess in the past few years for yourself and your own community and what you've seen and heard uh, from your space, what are some of the most common misconceptions, misunderstandings, myths when it comes to musculoskeletal pain and and, um, that kind of topic area? I think that uh, that's a good and a big question. And it's kind of an endless list, really. And I know it really will mirror just things that that um, that musculoskeletal clinicians also see, like in the evidence-based circle. Uh, But for me, I feel like a big, a big issue with with the yoga world is um, that scope of practice kind of topic that I alluded to back in the beginning. That like when I was a newer yoga teacher, I actually thought that I thought that um, I was qualified to help people and talk, you t- help them with their pain and help like quote treat their pain, even maybe diagnose it, and then tell them you know things to do to fix it. Uh, I, I find that to be very common in the yoga world that a lot of yoga teachers, I think, I think maybe we learn a bit about the body and about anatomy 
And that seems to kind of empower us to think that therefore we understand how pain works and how to help people in pain. And for sure, there's a relationship between yoga and helping pain, like yoga, just like any other form of movement in a general and big picture way can certainly be helpful for pain. I mean, I think I think evidence is pretty clear on that. So for sure, yoga can help that way, but it's just much more of a general um, general way that it works rather than anything specific or anything that like a yoga teacher kind of harnesses and and does in a specific way for someone. At least that's my that's my feeling. So I feel like the idea that yoga teachers like treat pain is something that I see that's kind of along the lines of what you're asking about. But then uh, in addition to that, it's like, not only do I at least feel like it's out of scope to do that, we're not trained to do that as yoga teachers. You know, we're trained to teach yoga, not to like diagnose uh, hip pain and what what that pain is about. Um, but in addition to that, I also feel that that uh, among among a lot of the pain talk we hear in the yoga world is just a ton of, and it makes sense. I know a lot of this information is relatively new, but there's just a lot of outdated ideas. All, all the ones that I'm sure you're well familiar with and and your audiences, but just uh, especially about alignment and not only that just like correct alignment within your yoga poses will you know prevent injury, prevent pain, maybe heal pain but also that like your alignment or your posture off the mat is very important. And like yoga teachers will often, you know, you hear, like, I just think it's interesting. Like yoga to me is about practicing yoga and like mindful movement and breath, but mixed in there these days, there's just a lot of like, let's talk about text neck today and how looking at your phone is, you know, this modern invention that's causing us all this, um, all this neck pain, you just things like that. I feel it's just kind of out of place for a yoga context. So I'd say alignment and posture are biggies, but of course there's so much else, you know, there's, um, your weak core will cause back pain or is the reason you have your back, back pain. Therefore we're going to strengthen the core in yoga. I mean, we could just strengthen the core in yoga without that attached narrative about connecting it to, you know, having any causal connection to pain. Um, really just the whole gamut of all the typical stuff that you tend to hear. Um, I'm trying to think about other things. Uh, oh yeah. Things about like muscle imbalances, uh, in the yoga world. I also find kind of today, this is maybe a little more trendy, but, uh, like trendy today, but a lot of fear mongering about uh, around passive stretching. I don't know if you've picked up on any of that or hear that in your circles as well. I, I try to avoid the Instagram search kind of bar to, or like the, just the, that, the spotlight or the discover um, kind of features. Explore, explore page. Explore page. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a no-go zone for me, but yes, I've, I think I've heard even amongst clinicians that the passive stretching um, can be dangerous. Is that? Yes. Yep. Yes. That's to totally what I hear as well. Um, yeah, I feel like there's a growing amount of that type of fear mongering within the yoga world and especially directed at the yoga world, because there's this perception that isn't necessarily accurate, but there's this perception that yoga equals like static stretching or something, mm -hmm. but yoga is actually about so much. Of course it includes like a lot of end range movements, but it's about a lot more than just static stretching. But I think because of that idea that like yoga equals static stretching, we tend to be targeted with a lot of that. And within the, and there's a lot of, um, you know, like active range of motion versus passive range of motion and, and, um, that mobility versus flexibility. And like, we need to, you know, we shouldn't be working with flexibility, which the idea is that that's just your passive flexibility. Like that's worthless. 
And instead, we all need to be working on just active range of motion only. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, I th- yeah, I think you're probably know what yeah, I'm talking um, about. So, yeah, I hear that a lot. I, I've, I've done a training course specifically, and I remember it was 2018 now, coming back to my traumatic past. But uh, that was one of the mantras yeah. taught. And and it's like, yeah. oh, yeah. So it, it took a while for me to uh, unpack that. And I think I was definitely in that camp five, six, mm-hmm. however many years ago. Um where I guess strength training was the be all and end all was a cure for everything. And you should strengthen, you should be active at all times, never passive. So I think, yeah, people can um, interpret it in the extreme way. And when it's said in that kind of absolutist way, like, you know, Mm -hmm. passive is bad or passive stretching can be dangerous and that there's no nuance and there's nothing else to it. There's, it's just like an absolute statement. It can be very much uh, harmful, unintended like consequences of that, kind of statement out there on, on, for instance, social media. Yes, I totally agree with you. I feel like that's a good way to put it. Um, It's always just a bigger picture and more nuanced. Um, I was going to say, I actually saw you repost a post of yours from a few years ago that I'm pretty sure is from the time that you're talking about when you took that training program, which I'm pretty sure I'm familiar with. I'm pretty sure I took that same one. And it was just, you were, it was, you're just so open again about how you evolve, how you evolve and change, just like we were talking about how I did that. But in your post, you were showing yourself with like this very serious expression doing what I think was like a controlled hip circle. And you had to do it like really correctly and not move any other other part of your body. And like that was somehow your salvation or something like it was just somehow super important to be that specific. But now you can kind of, you've, you've, uh, you've evolved, you can maybe laugh, laugh at that a little bit, but. Absolutely. The, um, it can be very helpful for, uh, so what I've used it actually as a pivot point is, um, in hip hop dancing and popping, there's a lot of isolation work. So I've used the concept to be able to isolate one part and then like do a controlled articular rotation in in any joint. (laughs) So kind of a joint by joint approach, but for the context of dance. So I think um, it's also helpful to know that it's not like a good versus evil morality question or like one thing is right, one thing is wrong because it can be quite inflammatory and taken again in an extreme way without the nuance, as you said. So, um, yes. yeah, I think this, this theme of revisiting our beliefs and, and unpacking and questioning and, and knowing that it's a strength to update mm-hmm. and, and acknowledge that we've come from a place where we used to think these things and we, we were taught these things that's human that's, and normal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you make such a great point that those like active controlled rotations actually, well, first of all, there's not, I think they are great to do, but they're just not necessarily super important to do or else this happens. But you make a great point about that specific example of that um, dance style and like moving in certain ways, or I picture like the old school, like the robot dance, like things like like, you really do have to isolate. So I could see how that would be a very specific application there. And when seeing some of these uh, we talked about like absolute statements online how how should we respond i see it as like a bit of a a range a spectrum depending on your relationship with the poster the creator uh, depending on if it's your own content like say it's a comment on one of your own content Mm. or if it's uh, from someone else's youtube video what as general themes obviously there's no one way to do it but how should Mm -hmm. how would you recommend clinicians or healthcare professionals respond when they see some misinformation online? I think that's a great question. And like you said, there are multiple different approaches and maybe they could all work to a certain extent. 
I guess I can speak from my my personal experience, like kind of what I've landed on where I'm kind of at these days with that, which is that um, what I see, you know, when I see misinformation, which I see a ton of because we're all inundated with that online, I think that if I go out of my way to like interact with or comment on that specific post, uh, I think that just feeds the algorithm and maybe helps just like make things even more inflammatory. Or if I were to share that post, like in say my, I'm talking Instagram, what if I shared it in my story? And then I gave some extra commentary about that. Again, I feel like it's still bringing attention to the original content, which for me, I just wonder in a bigger picture, like how helpful that is. So I've kind of settled on, I see all that stuff. I'm glad I see it because it keeps me in touch with a lot of those ideas that are circulating out there. And then when I have, when like the yoga students who I interact with and yoga teachers I interact with on a more personal one-on-one basis, I'm more connected with the things that they tend to hear out there. So I feel like I can help them better. But as far as combating that stuff online, my approach these days is more to just try to put out good information myself and be like a good example of at least my understand, my current and evolving understanding of what it means to be an evidence-based yoga teacher. Try to demonstrate by example rather than directly combating the other stuff yep i agree Uh, unfortunately that's the the way that the nature of social media the the way that Mm. um content becomes more engaging uh and you can i I get kind of lured into some um you know extremist kind of statements that often are very controversial for the sake of engagement so that's Mm -hmm. their purpose is to be controversial and it can be so easy That's to so to latch onto it and and like have that angry kind of fight response to it. And in the zooming out in the long term, it probably isn't the most helpful thing to engage and continually engage in this content because you'll be fueling and upvoting this mm-hmm. kind of content, not only on your own newsfeed, but also on the newsfeeds of likely some of your followers. I totally, I totally agree. Like, in fact, as an example, uh, someone just sent me, uh, I tend to get like a lot of messages from people these days who are just like, is this BS? Like, what do you think about this? Or I saw this, it doesn't make sense. So someone sent me this video of a couple, I think it was two chiropractors and they were showing, um, you know, it's like this wooden figure. I'm sure you've seen this before, the wooden figure, and you can kind of um, move with your hand to get it to bend down and pick something up. And you could do it in a way where it keeps like a tall neutral spine as it bent, you know, lifts with its legs, or it can hinge forward and round. And it's like showing you the difference, like lift up this way rather than this way. And the person uh, forwarded it to me and she uh, she said like, weren't you literally just telling us that that this is an outdated myth? And so, of course, I wrote back and was like, yes. And I referred her to a podcast episode we have that's specifically about, like, is it dangerous to round your low back? But I also thought that could be a great, you know, like teaching opportunity or example to share, like maybe with my audience. But I was literally like, I don't really want to share the original post. So how can I do this? I thought maybe I could try to take just a screenshot of the people showing the bent over, you know, just take a screenshot and then put that up and show that and be like, if you see this type of demonstration or if you see this post like just know this is like a myth I don't know like because that way I could share it and get people to understand what I'm talking about visually without promoting the original post yeah I don't know. sometimes yep. you have to be a little creative we, we do yeah you're right that's a that's a great idea and um I kind of get and this leads on to the next question about how how clients can respond and, and react and how we can um maybe prepare them for what's out there I think I, I get 
some clients who I see mostly the ones that I've seen um, more regularly and that we've kind of built some relationship and there's, there's a lot of trust um, with our therapeutic relationship. And then they start coming across things that their family or their friends say, and they come back mm. to me and be like, is that right? That doesn't sound right based on what we've been through. And, and so it not only it's, it's like, it's funny, some kind of seeing some of the uh, frustration that even I had when I had my own, um, you know, pain science awakening, we'll call it. And like yeah, how yeah. I had my own existential crisis that what I was taught, cause I was taught this, I was taught all this kind of body as machine narratives and yes. um, you got to make sure you're in the correct posture and form technique is important. Otherwise you're going to get injured. Um, and we mm-hmm. see that in our clients sometimes. So yes. ha- has this been your experience with, with clients? Like over time, they're like, Oh, there's a lot of BS out there. I didn't know how much there was. I would say yes. Um, I feel like in the yoga world, because we practice these yoga poses or yoga asanas, and depending on which yoga style you take, it, it can vary, but there's definitely this, this big rootedness in alignment. Like alignment is this really important guiding principle. You align your body in this specific way. And we have all these cues as yoga teachers to guide people there. It's not that much different from being like a, per, a personal trainer or guiding other people through um, like strength training or something, but it's it's still different in a yoga context. I think because there is that big presence of alignment, I think that's what kind of very easily gets mapped right onto that. These kind of fear mongering, outdated ideas about just like you said, uh, alignment to for safety, alignment to protect your body or to reduce the risk of injury. Even though I don't, I don't believe that earlier on in the yoga days, before we had all this kind of fear mongering language online and from maybe the the less evidence-based side of rehab, we still had alignment in yoga. And my impression is back then it wasn't really used so much for safety and injury prevention. It was more just like, this is how you align your body the way BKS Iyengar did, one of the kind of big founding fathers of modern postural yoga. It's more just like, this is how you do the pose like right based on the original, one of the original teachers, but less about this is about safety. And then um, these days, I think it's just kind of this natural kind of mapping on alignment onto alignment. So I think that a lot of yoga students who I come across, they just kind of learn, they take for granted that that's like what, why, why we use alignment in yoga, that it's for safety and that it's super important. And as they become yoga teachers, it, um, I think they take on this role of it's really well intended, but it's like me, I, as the yoga teacher, I'm, I, uh, one of my biggest roles is to keep people safe. And therefore that's why I use alignment. So when people are newer to maybe my style, I do sometimes hear that feedback that like, uh, I don't necessarily hear those same types of cues or that same type of emphasis coming from you. And that like, what's up with that? Or they just notice that there's a difference. And then that can give me an opportunity to explain I think when you're teaching um, these days, I, I teach just online yoga classes online in my online class library rather than in person. Um, but I think a lot of people who come to my classes now tend to come with a, pre- they kind of know my stuff online already. Like they maybe been a little re-enrolled in this paradigm that I'm coming from. So they're, they're not so surprised. Um, but I do sometimes get that feedback. Like you're teaching it like to you, these things don't, these things don't seem so important. Um, why is it emphasized is so important over here? They see these discrepancies. So again, I think maybe just kind of teaching by, by example, trying to embody, you know, teaching yoga in a way that we still use alignment. Like that's still a core part of yoga, but it's about how you use the alignment and like, what about it is important. I think just really trying to use positive language around the body 
and movement and alignment and showing people, you know, what they're capable of and just not using fear, unnecessary fear-mongering language in yoga. I think a lot of trying to help our students and like inoculate them from the BS is sometimes or maybe quite often less about what we do say and more about what we don't say as yoga teachers, just kind of cutting out a bunch of the script that tends to be out there. So like on the surface, it might not, you have to notice what's missing in order to kind of, you know, notice, notice the change. But anyway, does that sort of make sense? Just try to be positive, try to be uplifting and empowering to students rather than scare them or make them think their bodies are fragile or they're going to move in the wrong way or you're going to do this to fix your fix your text neck or fix your rounded shoulders or your pelvic anterior tilt or just your all the stuff that I hear mm. all the time in the yoga social media world. So yeah. Just trying to not do that. It's it's what we don't say as well that's just as valuable, if not sometimes more valuable. I think going back to one of the things you mentioned about scope of practice and I, I work with um, personal trainers and I, and I talk with a few yeah. who also don't have you know pain and injuries as part of their scope of practice. Yes. And I try to imagine myself in, in their position and, and in their context. And I think we rush for an answer. We want to provide some certainty so that we want to fill in the gaps of like, yeah. Oh, this is why you have hip pain. Yes. Um, and it's, you just need to do this. And it's like a, you know, problem solution. That's like just, the, the way that we are, I guess, taught and the way that we uh, practice um, in general mm -hmm. because we're helping clients. Clients are paying for us and we want right. to provide them an answer. But as you said, it's sometimes what we don't say. And and even maybe some ways of uh, some answers such as there's many reasons that could be causing. Yes. Um, what I'd recommend is to see a professional. Um, like, yep. So that opens up that interaction. That is I think underrated and undervalued how important that can be as opposed yeah. to trying to rush to provide a solution or to provide, you know, some kind of uh, cue that we've been taught. Um, Cause that, and that's always done with the best of intentions, but as we've been saying, there's value in what um, maybe what we don't say and, and, and acknowledging that there is uncertainty, even hearing from healthcare yes. professionals that even they don't know, that says something. So then but that's the honest more, answer. Yeah, exactly. Being, being honest. I think um, it's not to say that people are dishonest, but right. it's, it's trying to uh, acknowledge the uncertainty, acknowledge what we don't know when it comes to Absolutely. complexity. Yes. And I think, um, you know, the classic Dunning-Kruger effect, it's like sometimes when, and I think this is very widespread in the yoga world, like maybe in a yoga teacher training, we learn a little bit. We have an anatomy teacher come in and teach 10 hours or something. That's that's the technical, usually like in a 200 hour program. So we learn a little bit and then we somehow think that means that we're experts on the body or on movement and pain. And then we could think we know a lot. And, but once we start learning more, like when you actually take a deeper dive, I think that's when we can step back and realize actually the more, you know, the more you realize how actually uncertain it all is. And what you were saying was reminding me about a conversation I was just having recently with my, my husband, he's a sociology professor. He does super cool, like interesting work also a lot about like belief change. And um, he was talking about how, you know, just how, how we think that our brain, that the brain and the process of thinking is like this inherently rational one, when really that's like, not, that's not how the brain works. The brain didn't evolve to be rational or to see things clearly, but we just, we tend to think that it did. And he brought up this great point, I thought, which was that we tend to think that we like reason things out, uh, you know, rationally. And that even that term reason or reasoning things out is really about 
trying to find a reason for something like you were saying, like trying to find a cause, like you have this hip pain because your, your pelvis is slightly tilted. You have this asymmetry or you have this hip pain because your hip flexors are tight or because your glutes are, are weak or because your anterior pelvic tilt, like there's so many causes someone can just pick. I mean, there's so many, but when we, you know, placing this idea on like, well, I'm just being rational and calculating and here's the, here's the reason that they have this pain. It's like a one plus one, this like causal reason. So I think sometimes feeds into this illusion that like we have this really rational reasoning process in our brains to begin with. Yeah. Super interesting. And I've been diving into some uh, kind of sociology myself. So I think that zoomed out view is, is something that isn't really taught. Um, And we get to reductionist and like into that linear cause and effect thinking in, in our line of work. Um, I think that's traditionally totally. how medicine is taught and it's totally great for, you know, uh, viruses and, and there's like, you know, pathogens mm-hmm. and there's antibiotics. So it's like more linear, I guess, but even then yeah, it's a human body here. It's a whole ecosystem. So I think we might think that we're being uh, rational and reasonable, but there's a lot more to it. Um, and maybe having a, a zoomed out perspective is helpful and hearing some of your content, some of the content that all fitness and health professionals uh, put out that, mm-hmm. that dives into the uncertainty that kind yes. of acknowledges the uncertainty that, that there's many answers there's there's nuance to to it it's not as simple as a you know linear cause and effect absolutely and i think um because there could be any number of causes or any mix of any number of causes if if we're talking about like someone's pain here i feel like that's also really empowering because on the flip side to me that means that there are also like any number of things that can be done that could potentially help with that pain like it's not it's not necessarily one cause and it's not necessarily one solution but depending on who you're listening to on social media or what are on google some article you find you can you definitely get this impression that like this type of pain is because of this and this is the solution and like you said it's just so linear but it's just so overlooking the very nature of pain itself and just what a what a um, complex and multifactorial phenomenon is like yeah. And I, I think that um, as as yoga teachers and, I, and I'm assuming also just healthcare practitioners in general, but just or like pain clinicians in general, maybe we feel uh, if we don't give a single cause for something and like a single this is the solution, if we're not that linear about it, maybe we we feel like we look less smart or less knowledgeable. Like there's a little fear, like if you actually say, you know, I really don't know it kind of makes you sort of, it just, it can make people feel like they don't, it's like you kind of ego, you know, like they don't want to, they don't want to look bad or look like they don't know. So maybe there's more of a temptation to just be very definitive. Like it's this, this is what you do to fix it. Yeah. That confidence and clarity. It's like, this is the answer. That's it. And it, yes. pro- it portrays uh, knowing it portrays expertise and authority. Um, I, I wanted to, cause w- w- what you mentioned with alignment and within the yoga context that I'm not well versed mm-hmm. in um, with the history of some of the the, the rules and how things um, how poses, for instance, the, the constraints of poses to look more like they they should, not from a injury mm-hmm. pain standpoint, but more from just traditionally um, how mm-hmm. it was taught and how it originated. And um, what it, I'm, I'm thinking for uh, practitioners um, who uh, help clients with yoga poses and and that alignment cue comes up. Um, zooming out from a historical perspective might 
provide some deeper understanding, I think, because I, I would be like rushed to be like alignment, you know, doesn't really matter. Let's, let's just explore doing it with misalignment and see how it feels in your body, but also having a historical context of, ah, alignment is taught because this is just the way it was taught. And yeah. it's more from a different intention. It's not from an intention of being in perfect alignment to reduce risk of injuries. It's because of a historical context. So could you dive into a little bit of like, where did the alignment uh, briefly come from within yoga? Yeah. Yeah. So this is my understanding of like how to recap this, but, but basically like the yoga that we know today and that we're familiar with today in the West is often called like um, modern postural yoga. And it's really different from like, you know, sometimes I don't know if you've heard this before, but there's like a very common claim out there that like yoga is 5,000 years old and blah, blah, blah. And um, it's, first of all, I feel like that type of claim just reminds me of, uh, you know, appeal to antiquity. That's like one of those um, logical fallacies where just because something is ancient, like acupuncture, therefore it's, you know, it's worked for centuries. And so we all should do it. But I think that yoga sometimes gets that too. It's like, this is a practice that we should all be in awe of because it's 5,000 years old. But truly before around, I want to say around a hundred years ago, like previous to that, things that were yoga didn't really look much at all like what we know of today, like this uh, moving practice on the yoga mat full of these shapes that we would kind of recognize today as asanas. So previous to that, it was much more like aesthetics in India. And it was things like like the um, cities, supernatural powers, maybe these, um, what am I thinking of? like sitting for a very prolonged time, uh, maybe threading. And I, I'm not, this is not like really my area of expertise. These are just like impressions that I have, things I've learned like from some of my looking into this, but um, like threading, uh, like a string up through your nose and then down and pulling on it, like things like things that were just very much different than today and done for a different purpose. They really don't look like kind of modern asana or yoga poses. So Earlier uh, in the 20th century, there was a teacher named Krishnamacharya, and he kind of brought together uh, multiple influences. It was like, I want to say it was like British um, military exercises and some calisthenics and combined that with some with some actual more traditional yoga, brought that all together and kind of unified that into what we know today. And it has, it continues to evolve. It's evolved since then. It still evolves today. But Krishnamacharya is largely seen as like the grandfather of kind of modern yoga. And then he had three main teachers whom he taught that kind of went on to found like big, well-known branches of yoga that then they all just kind of spawned a ton. So like one of those is uh, Sri K. Pitabi Joyce and he founded Ashtanga Yoga. I don't know if you've heard of Ashtanga which is like this kind of very powerful, vigorous style. So there's Ashtanga and that style is actually known for being not very alignment focused. It's kind of known for like, you still do these shapes, but really diving deep into the specifics of alignment isn't, it's more like you're fast and you're flowing and yes, you you got your triangle pose, but then you just move on kind of thing. And then uh, there was TKV Desikachar, which was another Krishnamacharya student. So then he went off to kind of, uh, found this branch that's more known today as yoga therapy, which, um, you know, more, more gentle practices, more one-on-one -on -one type yoga, like one teacher to one student. And then there was BKS Iyengar, who I mentioned earlier in this conversation. He wrote this book, Light on Yoga, which is kind of one of the 
one of the core foundational yoga books you'll find assigned in all yoga teacher trainings. And he established Iyengar Yoga after his name. And he he and his style tended to be the one that was a that was more alignment focused. And so, yeah, so my under, so I was actually more of an Ashtanga person. I have not trained very thoroughly in Iyengar, but I know like I've taken classes and I know what how core alignment is. And generally people who come from that tradition, like Iyengar te- yoga teachers or people who are taught by Iyengar teachers, there's another branch of yoga called Anusara, which isn't really so much around today. They had a big scandal and they've kind of fallen out of favor, but that kind of came out of Iyengar. And there are still a lot of teachers today who come from roughly that segment of things. So in um, like in Anusara, uh, John Friend was the teacher who kind of founded that. And he was an Iyengar student, but he took these alignment principles from Iyengar that he had learned and he like codified them into what he called uh, universal principles of alignment. And it was basically just like every Anusara teacher was taught that that these were the, this was like the alignment kind of blueprint that every student needs to embody. And so that, that kind of move that was, that was maybe, maybe a time and maybe an influence for alignment kind of being shifted into more of the pain and injury prevention, you know, connection. Like I'm, I'm only thinking that just now, as I'm saying that I hadn't really thought that before. Uh, but before that time, I would just say Iyengar and his very alignment-based system was more just about, like you kind of said, it's just like, this is the tradition. These are the poses. They have meaning inherently. And you kind of click into or connect to the meaning or the flow of prana or energy in your body. Like these ideas about these subtle energy systems, they they line up right to flow correctly when you align this way. And therefore, it's very, alignment is very important. And Iyengar teachers will, you know, they'll, they'll teach alignment down to the T, like your second toe should be at this many degrees and your, your third rib from the bottom, that needs to come in like two millimeters, like very detailed, like that there's like that, that's just very important or, you know, superior. So does that sort of make sense? I don't know if I answered that very it, well, but. Yeah, no, it does. It just seeing how the historical roots intersect with how it's been interpreted and then how it's been applied is so fascinating. And it mm-hmm. just, um, at least for me, like I get a sense of like understanding and uh, even like empathy towards say a clinician who has been taught this way and it's just the way that they've been taught. And it's, it's, mm. it's come from, uh, there's a reason behind it. There's a story, there's attachment and meaning yeah. from the, the methodology. It's less about, you know, um, right versus wrong. It's like, oh, this is why yes. it's so important to you. Now I understand and I can then translate and then hopefully the listeners can also relate to maybe they've had their own experience with clients who've had pain and injuries with yoga and they can see why it's so important for them to be in a specific position um, and how, uh, how unfortunately rigid it can be these kind of rules. Um, So super fascinating. So thank you for uh, putting you on the spot here with the historical roots, but it's super fascinating. No, that's, Yes, totally. I'm glad I'm glad that you yeah, wanted to dive into that because yeah, I just think it's good to take a step back. It's like there's maybe a plus and a minus to having these, you know, very specific shapes that we embody and I, I think there are a lot of pluses to it in that it just tends to give something like a yoga practice this extra inherent identity or meaning. Like yoga practitioners know yoga poses when they see them. They have a meaning for them because of just that association and what they project onto that. And if a yoga practice, if a yoga class like strays too much from poses that really look like yoga, like some yoga students just, it doesn't feel 
like what they came there for. It doesn't feel like yoga. Like there's a lot of conversation around that. And um, I tend to teach a style of yoga that's a lot more inclusive where, you know, we're moving mindfully. We definitely do a lot of yoga poses and yoga asanas, but we add in a lot of variations and bring in some creativity and novelty because I do think there's a lot of inherent value in that, especially for longtime yoga practitioners who have done the same poses the same way for years. Like I, I used to back in my early days. Yeah, that's it. So you're practicing and uh, embodying that uh, variation in the rules so that you can still use the same yeah. language to um, to clients, to people who've been practicing yoga for years. So, so you're not kind of so foreign that it's like, well, what is this? This isn't even yoga. Um, so you're still within right. the, using the same language, yes. just in a different way and practicing it with new and creative, playful ways. Exactly. I think that's really well said. Like there's a container for it. Mm. Um, and your students are going to differ, you know, it depends on who your students are and what style, like Ashtanga yoga that I mentioned, that's more my background. If you're really doing um, truly Ashtanga, it's very specific. And if you change one pose, it's somehow not Ashtanga anymore. So it, it varies. And then some students have been a little more conditioned to be more open. And sometimes a yoga teacher can kind of cultivate that in their commu- their class community. Like we do a little bit more of, you know, it's yoga, but we bring in other different things and they can cultivate students who want that and are interested in that. So yeah. it's kind of like always this play and this balance and some teachers bring in more creativity. Some are very traditional and maybe there's like, there's a spectrum in between. I think you're just calling it traditional, just changes the word from wrong to traditional. It's fine. It's just traditional. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's right. Awesome. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. yeah. Just a different way. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm thinking now for uh, professionals who um, maybe want to connect. So when I say professionals, clinicians who want to connect with yoga professionals and, and yoga teachers, um, so speaking to uh, musculoskeletal pain clinicians, what, what are mm-hmm. some maybe indicators, uh, green flags for yoga teachers so who they can recommend, um, uh, how they know who is uh, perhaps most reliable? Obviously, not everyone has a social media page, for instance, um, but maybe with connecting and networking with yoga teachers, what are some things that we can look out for um, where there is that flexibility, where there is uh, less of, I guess, the rigid rules that it should be done this way and your second toe needs to align with your third rib (laughs) what are some of the green flags for for what we can look out for yes so like musculoskeletal clinicians who might want to collaborate with or work with yoga teachers what they might want it's such a good question and I almost feel like it's gonna depend Mm -hmm. because it may be that like uh a musculoskeletal clinician may be interested in working with a yoga teacher to really learn more about like traditional yoga. Mm. And in which case, maybe they want to seek out like an Iyengar teacher just so that they, you know, maybe they, maybe they're interested in um, bringing in more yoga student clients or patients, you know, so they'd like to familiarize themselves with what that looks like. Uh, But if you're thinking more like collaborating with a yoga teacher in terms of maybe they could work on things together or be like kind of more on more on the same page or, or working within the same kind of paradigm about the body. If if that's what you're asking, I think yep. maybe you are. I honestly feel like that's, that's tough. Like, um, I feel like I have good ideas for how to recommend to yoga students in mm. the yoga world when they, they, they'll often come to me and ask, like, how do I know which yoga teachers to trust or which mm. yoga educators, like that their information is, is uh, ideally more evidence-based. Like, what do I know? Because there's so much information coming at them all the time. And if 
if it's tough in the physiotherapy world and like um, the healthcare practitioner world with there being still so, so much of those communities that are outdated, Mm -hmm. I feel like it's probably worse in the yoga world Mm -hmm. as far as people not really, not really being super up to date with like what current research suggests about pain science, movement science, all of that stuff. So um, it's kind of hard. Like I, I feel like I had good tips for like people interested in actually finding like physiotherapists who are evidence-based, mm-hmm. but as far as yoga teachers, it's just like, I'm not sure that there's like a, a black or white rule because um, they're few and far between. And it's kind of more like you just have to kind of hone in and, and feel out their content a bit because mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a wild west, the mm-hmm. yoga world, maybe more so than um, like the healthcare practitioner world. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a method e- either, apart from if they do have a social media following and they're following Yoga Meet Science, yes. Strength for Yoga, Jenny Rowlings, I'll definitely, it's on the right track. <laughs> so it's kind of like yes. a, y- y- you can be a, an indicator of, okay, they're, they're at least looking at some reliable resources. They're, they're on track. It's within their community, within their, um, I guess, surroundings, their environment, their social media environment. Exactly. And I think, yeah, that's definitely something that I generally point to is like, who is in that person's network, you know, Mm -hmm. like if it's social media, Mm -hmm. like look at who they follow, and then maybe you can get a sense for like, what they're tuning into. And this kind of goes for like the physiotherapy, physical therapy worlds and the yoga world. But again, it's just like, I feel like when I tune into um, like people who who treat pain, I feel like there are a lot of figures who kind of rise up to me in my mind that if I see people following those people, I know that they're really on that, you know, on a more up-to-date path, but it's just not so clear in the yoga world. Um, I think you're right. I mean, I, I know, I think I'm kind of known for putting out as evidence-based information as I can. So I do think if people tend to follow me, if they follow Travis Pollan, who's one of my collaborators. And um, as you, as you know, and he does the yoga meets movement science podcast with me, he's an amazing educator and really up to date. Uh, but also there's a yoga teacher, Jules Mitchell, who's uh, my main yoga mentor. And she's really great. She has her master's in biomechanics and teaches a ton from like a really research-based perspective. So she's really great. There's a, there's a physical therapist and yoga teacher, Shelly Prosco specializes in you might do you're nodding like I think maybe you know who she is yeah so she's really great pelvic floor she does a lot of focus on that and then someone you've had on your podcast before Oliver Crossley he's um physiotherapist and also a yoga teacher and really kind of bridges both of those I think really beautifully and I think he's a really good so if you're following him or like tune into his content I really support what he does so me I hope that's helpful like that's kind of some people off the top of my head that Mm -hmm if people are tuning into them and support them, that that might be an indication that they're kind of, mm, you know, and, a and little more on the evidence-based. You act as kind of networking kind of connectors to see, okay, who uh, if, if you know someone that you would recommend, then that kind of um, grows the community and we can all like build that kind of uh, reliable community and, and, and networks. Um, and not to say, I think you've made a great point. Maybe it's, 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 it's definitely helpful to experience for ourselves what it's like to um, to work with other yoga instructors and yoga teachers and, and just experience their class and how they teach and what they're yes. like and then just find out to understand a little bit more. Um, it's not to say to avoid um, them if they have very you know rigid rule like um, teachings, but just to experience it to see what it's like. 
It's true. Like even myself as a yoga practitioner, I still really enjoy going to yoga teachers who are just like showing up in a town and going to a class. And, you know, like I said, it's very far and few between that in the yoga world, there are people really kind of tune into the research and the evidence. So the majority of yoga classes we find out there probably are not super up to date. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I mean, I could just kind of tune that stuff out and just mm. enjoy the experience of a class and who the teacher is and what kind of space they're creating. There's mm. there's a lot more to the experience of a yoga class than just just what a teacher is saying. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I think there's a lot to be gained from taking any class, whether that person is quote, evidence-based um, or not, yes. you know, especially Great if you point. want to learn about the practice. Exactly. Yes. And and from your, your upskilling and, and you've made the time to dive into anatomy to biomechanics and pain science what yeah was, what was your journey like what was some of your key take-homes um if you were to you know i'm not gonna get you to condense it in 60 seconds but <laughs> what were some of the, the key takeaways that you've had over the time that you've um upskilled and you've you've um you've learned yeah. some new concepts that weren't taught to you previously totally i uh, i definitely feel like really going out of my way to learn as much as I could about just anatomy, um, how, the structure of the human body, and then movement, biomechanics, movement science. I feel like what that did for me was uh, because previous to that point, I was teaching yoga really with that as a big major gap in my knowledge. Um, it just, it helped me see movement more clearly and it helped me kind of understand the yoga poses in a different way. Because whereas when when you just take a kind of a typical or a traditional yoga teacher training, you're taught like this is triangle pose, this is downward dog. We, you know, we do this because this is what the book shows. And if you look at like um, yoga journal, I don't know if you've heard of yoga journal before, but they're a pretty big established, like used to be, I guess they're still a magazine, but these days they're more of like a online kind of multimedia. They're just a big, a lot of people look to yoga journal as an authority, which is really disappointing because they're full of misinformation, I would say about the body. But if you go look up like yoga poses in um, yoga journal, at the most, they might just say, as far as like, um, as far as like a biomechanics based look at these poses, they would just say like, this pose um, is strengthening or this pose stretches. Maybe they'll say it stretches the hamstrings or it's strengthening for the legs, but it's just very general, vague language. You know, it doesn't really tell you what's really going on. So learning more about like all the joints of the body and really how they move and like what loading looks like and how the rela- your relationship of your body to gravity will really change the loads. And um, just learning like that kind of, you know, just very basic foundational, like kind of exercise science stuff. For me, it helped transform and really enhance how I saw the yoga poses and can help then, um, it helps me in cueing when I'm teaching classes. I understand more like what exact joint action am I asking students to do? And then how can I describe that in a way that's that's really clear and will we'll get them there without needing to um, get super like anatomical in my language. I definitely know many students don't understand like anatomical terms, so I'm not super technical about it, but I can still understand it on my side so that I can teach it in like a clear way and try to help translate what I'm asking people to do. So I think, yeah, learning anatomy and biomechanics has helped me just teach the movement uh, aspect of yoga better. And has helped me with my confidence in my teaching. Like I feel more intentional. I'm not 
necessarily just teaching this pose because it's a page in a book because it's from Iyengar's Light on Yoga, but I could teach it because of that, because that does have meaning and people identify with it. But then I can layer on like what's actually happening in the body. What happens if we lift a hand up, um, you know, or lift a foot or turn the feet out a little or turn them in. Like you can add on these variations and I'll, I'll have a better understanding of like what I'm actually, what loads I might be inviting into or what, what we're mobilizing differently by um, bringing in these like variations or these creative takes on the poses. So yeah, I just think it's helped with my understanding of what's going on, how to cue more clearly. And then with my confidence and like knowing why I'm asking people to do things. Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? So called like knowing the, the, basic principles to then manipulate loads for any particular pose. So, you know, if you lift a hand up, how that's going to interact with the rest of the body and how the force will be different and how to make things easier or harder according to each client. So you can know all the variations um, and have a bit more uh, intention behind why you choose certain variations. A hundred percent. And you're saying that also just reminds me, that's such a great point that also understanding more about all of that can help a yoga teacher and help me teach a class that's more inclusive or more accessible, maybe is the word. Um, yeah, yoga classes aren't necessarily accessible to every body because you know they involve being on a mat in the middle of the room and generally the, abil- the ability to get up and down off the floor with relative ease. And I know not everybody possesses that, but if you have, if you kind of meet that prerequisite, then um, you can help make a yoga class more accessible to people with uh, varying strength levels and mobility uh, in their body. Because if you understand more about how the body moves, and like you said, how force is applied to the body, then you can uh, in a more clear and systematic way, suggest variations or maybe modifications to teach any one pose a number of different ways so that mo- anybody who's in the room can find a variation that that fits them. There's definitely some overlapping themes for any exercise and exercise movement-based professionals mm-hmm. to to acknowledge and to recognize that, that that's one of the biggest values that I think we overlook sometimes when it comes to anatomy biomechanics. We want to look at what's the the one way or the right way or the best, most optimal way. It's like, oh, there's many ways. So we can have that kind of deeper understanding through applying the basic principles. That's so true. I really like the irony that you point out. It's not about showing us like the one optimal way, but it actually just opens options for there being a lot of variety. Exactly. And one of the, as a final question, the the common um, concepts with pain injuries and, and it's a, uh, it's in our vernacular as well with the the way that people describe uh, tension and tightness and mm. a, a common theme. I've had a few clients myself who have um, uh, experienced tightness. And this is an interesting um, multifactorial felt experience and it's yeah. complex and I can get very nerdy very quickly. So for from your expertise, if a client comes in, uh, complaining about tightness and they're experiencing discomfort and, and their tightness is in a particular yoga pose or, or movement, how would you go about uh, helping them and helping them understand tightness? Or if they are asked, like, why am I so tight? What would be some yeah. of your go-to um, helpful responses? Absolutely. Um, just like you said, you could definitely get pretty geeky about the topic of tightness. And I love how you define it as like this multifactorial experience really, which is what it is. But I think if I had like a yoga student complaining of tightness, I wouldn't 
try to go on some educational lesson about like, well, let's talk about the nature of tightness. And, you know, it could mean this, it could be that like, but uh, more just acknowledge where like what, what it is that they feel and where they are with that feeling. So really validate what they feel, even though I might know that because they have a certain perception or feeling in their body, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's something structural going on or something structural that they think is going on there. Like it's just what we feel in the body isn't necessarily reflective of the actual state of our tissues, but we don't need to say all of that. So instead just validate someone's experience. And uh, maybe you know, if I had that student and maybe it was like a one-on-one context, you know, maybe we, and if, if one of their goals was to address and change or change that tightness, you know, it sounds, that's kind of a common and again, tightness is complex because do they mean I have tight hamstrings today, which that might translate just to, I can't fold forward very far. So that's like tightness in, in terms of reduced range of motion. Or do they mean like, I just have this tightness in my, I don't know, my back. It just feels tight, um, which is more kind of like achiness, discomfort. Like, is it that? So I guess kind of getting to the bottom of without trying to pick apart what they're saying, try to understand what they're saying, you know? And then of course, it's just funny because you're talking about like a yoga teacher addressing someone's tightness, which can be understood as like discomfort. And that starts to border on pain. And then we're like scope of practice. Like I'm not treating someone's pain. It kind of gets gray area. Right. But um, I feel like maybe just feelings of tightness is, is not necessarily pain and it's not necessarily out of our you know, league to, to help someone with. So kind of trying to understand what's going on. And then something like, you know, starting a yoga practice with some focused, intentional breath awareness, like some pranayama, which is like the yoga, the Sanskrit word for like um, controlled breath practices. So maybe something like that to kind of down-regulate the nervous system, maybe with a little focus uh, potentially on the area of tightness, or perhaps distracting from the area of tightness, maybe giving them something else to focus on, but just kind of, kind of getting them to downregulate and then, um, you know, maybe introducing some gentle movements that may actually start to move that area, but in like a very non-intimidating way, staying in touch with how they're feeling though, like keeping that communication open. Again, this is very much in the setting of like a one-on-one or a private, not so much like a group yoga class. But, um, you know, movement can also be, can often be so helpful for feelings of like, quote, stiffness, tightness. Um, But if it's about like a tightness, because it's like a limited range of motion, then it might be something more like, well, let's do some focused mobility work for that area, you know, really kind of hone in there, maybe a little pre-test at the beginning of practice, like how, how far does that joint go before we start and then move through a practice, include some targeted work for that area, and then recheck at the end so they can actually really experience that change, um, which we know a lot of that is temporary and acute, you know, like viscoelastic changes that may reset, but maybe just experiencing consciously the change could maybe help be a positive input in to the nervous system to feel better about that area. That's great. Uh, moving Validate. forward. Yeah, validate the first um, that kind of response is the most helpful for the majority of cases um, and trying to understand where and, and what their experience is. Because like you said, it could overlap with soreness, fatigue, pain, maybe, maybe tight and painful. So yes. just acknowledging um, what it is that they're experiencing for a sense of understanding, not rather than to kind of explain away what yes. they're experiencing. 
Um, I think that's probably the first step. And then you can, the, the kind of solutions can emerge from there, as you mentioned, if it's more of a range of motion, how can the mm -hmm. movement be modified? Um, and if it's more of a, 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 like a experience in a certain position, maybe normalizing that we all kind of experience tightness in yes. some movement, um, you'd hope so. Otherwise, you know, we don't have any protective mechanism. We just keep going and going and going. And you're maybe, so right. <laughs> so it's a great like point. normalizing it as well in that process might be helpful with experiential um, exercises. And as you mentioned, the breathing and intentional work on, in an area, or even um, just continuing on and, and seeing if they can expand their awareness around the rest of their body. Um, so they're mm -hmm. not so hyper fixated the whole time. That's right. Like, you know, 60 minute class, say on just one body part exactly like shift their focus and their awareness like some potentially some distract like there are really a lot of options there's also just like it, it so much depends but just the inherent value and in like novel movements if they've been you know moving in a in a certain type of yoga style for a long time or if you can tell that they hold their body in a certain kind of position all the time maybe without necessarily needing to tell them this is mm -hmm. what I'm doing mm -hmm. you can guide them into ways of moving just trying to change up the pattern because mm -hmm. that can be reassuring input in just um novelty and showing the nervous system it's okay hmm. again i know this is a little bit bordering on uh, getting into treating pain which i know is not like not our scope but it's it's a little in that realm that you're asking the question of i think it's kind of gray area it is it i have a my own personal opinion on the kind of silos with yoga yeah. professionals fitness professionals and pain professionals and there is absolutely a time for red flags and indication of further investigations and scans but that knowledge should be known across the board i, 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 don't, I don't see a reason for um unfortunately it might be legal reasons but, uh, but there's a legal mm -hmm. reasons we have to respect depending on where you are in the world but there's no reason right. why we can't learn about for instance red flags and major indications that something's up um and and even absolutely. knowing about pain and understanding more about the science of pain, which is like totally. people like you are doing communicators, uh, science communicators like yourself um, are so important right. and needed. Right. I fully agree. And I think um, it's very, definitely not common practice within a yoga teacher training for yoga teachers to be taught about red flags. And I totally agree with you. I think that's like one of the major differences between like a yoga teacher coming out of a 200 hour yoga teacher training and then an actual like pain clinician is understanding. I think, you know, those red flags and knowing how to screen for them and refer someone out are hugely important. So if yoga teachers knew those, I think that would be a great step toward, you know, broadening horizons. Yep. I agree. So as we uh, contemplate and idealize an ideal kind of scenario and, and future world, um, is there anything before we, um, before we wrap up Jenny, um, that I missed or that you'd like to uh, communicate to, to our audience? No, I think you asked really great questions and um, I'm really thankful for all these topics that we got to discuss. I think we kind of covered a lot. Amazing. Yes. And um, hopefully this was also a demonstration that we can collaborate with fitness, yes. yoga professionals and healthcare professionals um, as well. So it was uh, eye-opening and I learned a lot through this conversation. So I very much appreciate your time. And for the listeners who are also keen to find out more about you and your work and your amazing podcast, where can we find you? So, yeah, I'd say the best way, probably 
probably head to my website and sign up for my email list might be the best way because then you stamped it on everything. My website is just my name, jennyrawlings.com. And that's Jenny with an I. So J-E-N-N-I-R-A-W-L Rawlings. Um, I'm, I'm on Instagram. So that's like at Jenny underscore Rawlings on Instagram. Um, but yeah, website email list is maybe the main. Oh, and then the podcast, like you mentioned, we have the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast that Travis Pollan and I do together. You can find that on all major podcast platforms. So definitely recommend that if you have an interest in like yoga and also strength. We talk a lot about strength training stuff and movement science and just the intersection between all that and pain science too, all that yep. stuff. And the two topics, just a shout out, polyvagal theory was by far the best like one of the most succinct and easiest to digest um, uh, unpacking and exploration of that topic that I've seen. So thank you. Cause that's been coming across in my circles. Oh, and you've been, that, you've been noticing that. Yep. And that nasal breathing as well. Really. Oh, good nasal so, breathing. So I think those are my, the top two episodes. So yeah, just want to I'm shout honored. out. Polyvagal theory. I think it's like episode 14 or so. And then nasal breathing is pretty recent. That was mm. in the mid 30, late thirties, something like that. Like as far as the numbers of episodes, thank you so much for um, mentioning those. I'm honored. You appreciate those episodes. Absolutely. Jenny, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and expertise and until the next time. Yes. Thank you, Daniel. I'm so glad I got to be here.